You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. I'm doing an IG Live tonight, which I don't normally do, because we're going to have a little discussion with a really good friend of mine named Kim Weeks, and she's coming on, and we're going to talk about the Ashtanga Yoga lineage, which is pretty cool. So those of you may have caught my discussion with Kim a few weeks ago, and this is kind of a continuation of that, and yeah. So I'm just going to wait for Kim to get on and I may even invite her and see if she's on. Okay. Ooh, let's see. All right, everyone. How's it going? There, I see Kim. We're going to log Kim on right now. Hi. Hopefully. How are Kim, you? I'm trying to invite you. I think you have to accept. Oh, there you yeah, go. There we yeah. go. Yeah. Nice. Hi. You can hear me. Hi. I can hear you. Absolutely. It's so good to see you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You, nice to nice to see you again. Totally. And lots of travel recently or no? I can't remember where you've been on the map over the last Oh couple gosh. Weeks. Neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well then I am really I am so thankful for your time and to talk more about the Ashtanga lineage. You know, we've talked so much about you know, guru update. And there's so many things to talk about. So I would like to start at the top and say, um, a lot of questions came up for me during our call and during your class. And I, it seems to me, I've been following you for a while and watching with great interest in your, sorry, your sort of discussions on the accessibility and inclusion in yoga. And I didn't know about your book that's coming up. So tell me about it not so much like when can we expect it coming i'd love to know when you're going to publish it but also tell me tell me about the structure tell me how you're approaching the book on the accessibility of ashtanga yoga well the project that i'm currently working on is going to be is a working title called accessible ashtanga and the main premise behind this new book project that i'm working on with my publisher shambhala is to really kind of update the way that people think about the Ashtanga yoga practice, both from the lineage perspective, as well as from the postural perspective. Uh, sometimes uh, in the Ashtanga yoga practice, what can sometimes happen is that the people can end up on almost like an asana race to accumulate more and more asanas and build this false equivalence between how many asanas you can do in your level of spiritual development. And then people can make a false equivalence between, you know, your level of strength or flexibility and, uh, you know, what your, what your inner experience is. So what I'm seeking to do with the Ashtanga practice is actually provide a path so that everybody who wants to show up and do the work of the practice can find a way to do the work of the practice as is appropriate for their body. So that, for example, my mom, who has two total knee replacements, should never be put in a position where she's made to feel less than a student or held back because she cannot ever achieve the lotus position. And also because she's doing what is traditionally called the jump back and the jump through, simply because she doesn't have enough 
um, you know, there, there, there will just never be the ability to close her knee joint completely. So she's a good example of kind of how the practice needs to be reformatted and represented in a way to truly be accessible. And the book will be formatted into two parts. The first part will be a discussion of kind of an update of the Ashtanga yoga lineage, addressing some of the uh, questions about what yoga is in our contemporary age, addressing both the sort of pitfalls regarding cultural appropriation and the whitewashing of yoga in our very commercialized and industrialized uh, yoga world here in Western countries. And then at the same time, recognizing, looking back and seeing what may have been some of the faults of a very hierarchical lineage-based structure of the past. And, and, and then kind of not necessarily presenting a new model because I'm not the one that can do that. It's really something that has to be an organic kind of development that happens within a community. So I'll be more kind of presenting thoughts and the reflection points and uh, you know, uh, sharing my insights. And I'm going to be very much focused on storytelling in this book, particularly in the in the beginning part. I, I'm, I'm collecting stories of people that have practiced Ashtanga Yoga and written in positive stories and also stories where maybe the, the, the there's been harm committed within the lineage uh, or even outside of the lineage and then they've healed within the lineage and, and these sorts of things. So there'll be more stories of students that will appear in that first section. And then the second section will have postures of the primary series and some of the second series, select poses of some of the second series. I did whether I'm going to include the non, uh, non-adaptive and non-accessible version or variation because I already have those books, but I'm not decided on that. I'm going to be working not only alone, but I'm reaching out to a kind of leaders in the field of Ashtanga Yoga who are really um, connected with the message of accessibility. So I really believe that it's a community endeavor um, that we really need to grow together. And what my hope is that um, when we teach the Ashtanga method and we enter into the space, which is that traditional, what's called the Mysore style practice, where we're practicing uh, the, the memorized series of poses that's, that, are, that, we've, uh, that we've sort of worked on with our teacher. My hope is that the space will be truly inviting for all different levels of practitioners and students so that the competitive vibe will kind of be toned down a little bit and we can value the inner work of, of every student that comes in and place kind of the humanity of the student's journey first to really validate and honor everyone's work. So for example, if you have a student that cannot get up and down from the floor, like for example, my mom cannot get up and down from the floor, then we'll we create the whole primary series in a way so that she can do the whole practice from a tear. And, 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 and there'll be these many things that come on. So, yeah. So it brings up a lot of questions for me that, we, that I'd love to know more about, which is, the teacher training aspect in Ashtanga yoga. Like I'm thinking about mm-hmm. this co-creation of the, a co-creation of making yoga itself more accessible for people, because of course Ashtanga isn't the only lineage that is wrestling with this um, issue. Like how inclusive are various lineages around the world to, um, you know, people with different bodies and different, you know, there's so many different ways to approach the practice. So how will you be including in the book or will we be hearing more from you about how teachers can become empowered 
to handle all of these different approaches to the primary series or to the other series? Well, the first thing that I'd like to say is that my teachers in India were always available to teach whichever students were, were showed up and were willing to put in the work. Mm-hmm. So many people associate Ashtanga yoga with this gymnastic kind of athletic movement where there are handstands and deep backbends and flip-flops and all sorts of leg behind the head asanas. And that's all there. However, some of my most intimate memories of being in India and watching my teacher teach after I was finished the practice were with students that had various, uh, very, various different types of bodies. Some were elderly and had never done the practice before. And some, uh, there were a couple of times that he taught amputees and then the practice was entirely modified to work with their bodies. And that really showed me a very clear message that what we think about Ashtanga yoga is not this dogmatic series of asanas. It's this is a framework, a language, a grammar that allows us to communicate to the intelligence that's within the human being that came to the yoga practice. So this is, I think, extremely important. Now, my teacher, Patavi Joyce, and his grandson, Shada Joyce, they never did, I never did teacher training with them. And this is interesting because the, their idea was that the yoga practice should give you, after some period of time, some deep experience of personal transformation. And you should be able to teach from that knowledge base. And that's the foundation and the basis of kind of where you're sharing from. And without that, you can collect intellectual knowledge that says this and that and this and that. And then what that turns into is instead of creating a format or forum for learning, then it gets to be kind of creating a carbon copy or creating, you know, this, um, this kind of space where instead of creating a space for people to learn, we program the students. And unfortunately, that's happened a lot, not only in Ashtanga, but in our Western contemporary world. And I think this goes something to say around the, the idea that, you know, in the West, we have, we are, we are very singular oriented. We, we want the one truth. We want the one way. We want the one knowledge. You know, we, we worship the one God in the Judeo-Christian paradigm. And, and this, this sort of singularity makes us try to, try to sort of superimpose that on any knowledge basis that we work with. And so when many students from the West come into yoga, they want to know what is the one way I should do my triangle pose? What is the one way I should do my forward bend? What is the one way I should do my headstand? And unfortunately, what I learned from my teachers is there's not one way. As many bodies as come into the yoga practice, that's how many different triangles and how many different headstands and how many different asanas you're going to experience. So to teach yoga requires so much more kind of embodied knowledge than it does require, you know, a, a list of do's and don'ts and saying, you know, well, like we can't, you, we can't turn yoga teaching into kind of finger wagging where we say, no, 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 not this, because there might be someone that, yeah, 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 you know what, that's right for them. So we have to be available for that. So I actually think my teacher was onto something with teacher training being very difficult because now in our, say, world where we do 200 hours and we turn people loose on the world and say, hey, you're a yoga teacher, go register with somewhere and now you can go and start to teach. 200 hours is nothing. You know, they say it takes 10,000 hours to develop mastery and that's just practice. So if we right. think about methodology of teaching, you know, gosh, it just takes, it takes so much time to be able to create that as a basis. So, you know, we offer apprenticeship programs. We offer more in-depth training programs at, at, at the studio that my husband and I run, Miami Life Center in Miami. At the, you know, at the same time, 
And the reason for that is because at the same time that 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 you that the knowledge base that you teach from is your own personal experience, we still genuinely believe that we can shine a little light on the path, like basic foundational understanding of anatomy, basic foundational understanding of the critical sacred texts from within the yoga lineage, the idea that you know there's some kind of shared knowledge base that yoga teachers can really, really work with, especially in our contemporary age. So there are things that make the, 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 the traditional teaching and the traditional lineage-based practices is more appropriate for our contemporary environment. So the idea to really embrace what is truly Ashtanga yoga, which is you know the eight full limbs that create the moral and ethical guidelines to live a full life, then we have to include the, the, the sort of contemporary concepts of addressing cultural appropriation, addressing systemic racism, addressing injustice, addressing harms that have been committed within the lineage, the, you know, um, uh, and, and really bring those up to the surface for healing so that we can, you know, we can, we can craft a new path forward. It's an interesting idea. The idea of, you know, the, you see my, um, rope wall behind me, which belies my most recent training, which is an Iyengar. And I'm as a certified Iyengar teacher, it, the apprenticeship model is, is, is a, also very live and well, and, being sort of expert adjacent, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. sort of very close to an expert or other experts um, aligns, it seems to me, your own lived embodied experience of the practice that you have day in and day out on the mat, off the mat, um, in terms of the Ashtanga part of the practice, the entire sort of system. And so I wonder, do you think that as we co-create this new world of helping, for example, 200-hour trained teachers to be more expert adjacent. Let's say like how, what, what advice do you have? This wasn't exactly one of the questions that I set up, but, but you've, you've answered this about the, what the teacher training was like. What would we say after each of us 20 or so years of this kind of practice and teaching to people interested in becoming expert adjacent, <laughs> close to an expert mm-hmm. teacher in an apprenticeship model? Yeah, so this is a super good question because I think that anyone who would be even interested in saying, I want to join a mentorship, I want to dive deeply into the student's right. journey, I want, to, I want to soak up and be like a sponge, yeah. is someone who is kind of laying the foundation to be a really qualified yoga teacher at some moment. It's so the true. people, you know, who say like, I want to be a yoga teacher. And then within, uh, you know, hop, skip and a jump, they've got their website and their branding and they're, you know, excelling in the marketing aspects of it, but they haven't laid the firm foundation of the student's journey. And unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of training available and really good marketing out there, but it takes time to dive deeply into yoga methodology. It's not something you can learn like this. It's not something you can learn in 200 hours. We consider 200 hours to be the foundational beginning of the student's path. So actually our 200 hour course, we call it a 200 hour Ashtanga Yoga Practitioners Intensive. And even though we go through the complete curriculum that's set up by, you know, Yoga Alliance at the same time, we really firmly believe that this is kind of the prerequisite to even consider whether or not maybe you want to consider teaching and, and we're getting people established in consistency of practice. We're getting people established in the grammar of asana. We're getting people established in what sadhana means to understand that to be devoted to your practice. 
So I would say that for anyone considering a, like a mentorship with a teacher, I would say to make sure that number one, make sure you're devoted to your practice, make sure you're practicing regularly, that you have enough commitment to yourself within the yoga lineage, uh, the student's journey before you start to approach a teacher. And that's super important because if you want to do a mentorship, it's not a, you know, it's not a one month thing. This is going to get the most out of it. It's going to be, I would say at least a year, potentially more and to build that relationship. So make sure that you are devoted enough in your personal practice to really ask that of someone. Teacher takes you on what they say in the, you know, one of the, the, the most damaging things that can happen between the teacher student relationship is some rupture. So this, this, this mantra that we, that we, you know, one of the Shanti mantras, the Sahana Bhavatu, this one that we often chant to initiate the, the learning process between the teacher and student, it's may this be for the benefit of you and of me for the student and of the teacher. So this is something to really think about. Then, I, then I think the second thing is, and this is weird, but test the teacher you know, evaluate that teacher on the mat, off the mat, in their life, and make sure that we continue um, to really, like, because you're going to mentor with someone, you're going to model that person, you're going to walk in their footsteps. So make sure that those are the footsteps that you want to walk in and make sure that's the destination you want to arrive to. And not just on the mat, someone does beautiful asana, but they're not a nice person when they're, you know, going around in their life. I, I would probably recommend have a limited interaction with them, take what you can and move on. But if you meet someone who's inspiring to you as a human being, then then spend as much time as you can with that person. And if they're not doing mentorships, then just go and take their class as often as you right. can. Right. And 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 the and the other thing that we have to address in our contemporary world is that, as you mentioned, to be expert adjacent requires some sacrifice. And not every student is going to be able to have the uh, the privilege to sacrifice. There's economic privilege. Some teachers are not close by. I had the, the, I sacrificed a lot to go to India, which means that, you know, I moved back in with my parents and I didn't pay rent. I mean, you could say they sacrificed so that I could go to India, but they were, they were actually pretty quite happy to have me there. Um, and, and, and so I would, you know, I would just, uh, as much as possible, um, you know, go back and forth to India and spend time there, but not everybody can leave their family, can leave their life, can yeah. organize their life so they have no financial obligations. You know, people are, you know, uh, weighed down by massive student debt and all other sorts of things that just accumulate in our life. Sometimes we have family obligations that allow us to go and, you know, leave our life for months at a time. I had the privilege to be able to do that. And I recognize that. And I, I, I hope to be able to use the privilege that I was afforded to share the traditional teachings with others. So one of the things we're super committed to is to create a bridge for individuals that do not have that same privilege. And that includes making scholarships available for those individuals who either just want to practice but can't afford it or want to do a training but can't afford it. And we really put front and center individuals within marginalized communities. And that's extremely important for us to kind of be a bridge to these traditional teachings as much as possible. Totally. You know, I was just on a call with the Kripalu people today, and I was so interested in hearing them um, talk about, you know, I mean, they have, they, well, it's, it's a little bit of, you know, what, what, what you're building there in Miami, but what they have there up there in Massachusetts is this retreat center, this place where people have been able to go for 50 years to retreat, and they are bringing in activists to basically live and be so that they, Kripalu, can support those activists with whatever it is that they are doing and trying to change in the world. And it reminds me so much of some of the things that I've been hearing you 
talk about because I, it seems, you know, in, in my perspective, having interviewed a bunch of lineage heads this year, we are all really thinking about how it is to not just talk about more inclusivity in the yoga world, not just talk about more accessibility, but because we, if I may, as yoga practitioners doing this work, which I would like to, and I want to talk about this work, we're doing this work. We know we cannot keep going forward, teaching and practicing yoga without continuing to make really important choices. One might call them sacrifices, but I don't see it that way at all. I see them as the most critical choices to uh, be the people that to be, to continue to broaden this ability, who we can reach when, where, and how. So uh, is there some stuff you're, you all are doing out there in Miami Life Center? I mean, I heard you talk about it before and we can certainly move on, but I just find that aspect of how you're putting this accessibility issue like front and center, very interesting. Yeah, the scholarship program is really our, our you know, the thing that we can really mm -hmm. give the most in addition yeah. to doing community events and community outreach. We're in contact with in our new building where we're now located. Yeah, at congrats the, at on the, that. That's thank great. You. Yeah, so in the, the neighborhood that we're located at is is we're we're in contact with the, the Community Redevelopment Association and oh, they cool. helped, uh, they connected us in that project. And so in collaboration with them, we're reaching out to local businesses to see how we can connect with the local community and uplift the local community. However, the scholarships that we offer are not only for people in Miami, but are for people everywhere. So sometimes people come to Miami and do a training with us, but we also travel and go other places. We also uh, teach online. I have omstars.com, which is my online channel. And we have a commitment to uh, give some lifetime memberships to people that are from marginalized communities and also who suffer from um, economic disadvantage. So that 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 form is, has been available for years, mm -hmm. and uh, people can apply. Uh, sometimes we also do community outreach by again sending a teacher to a community in need. But we really actually believe in empowering people within their own communities to let them rise up and lead their own communities yes. rather than having our community go out and send someone. We want to totally. provide, again, a bridge for someone who's interested within their own community to come over, get the knowledge from us, and then go back to their community so that they stay connected and that they're the leaders that then kind of uh, create resilience and, uh, you know, evolution and growth with, and change within their own community. Thing I think that's extremely important when we talk about the intersection of, you could say, um, spiritual practice and social justice, yeah. this is something that is not only contemporary, and we need to remember that, right? So we, 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 I think we as human beings always tend to think we're super special and that what we're going through has never been experienced before in the history of humanity. But there, were, there have been numerous times when the intersection of spiritual practice and social justice has kind of reached a pivotal crescendo to create great moments of change in our world. One of which you could say within the Indian subcontinent is Gandhi's, you know, Gandhiji Absolutely. reaching out to create that peaceful revolution, whereas numerous resistances to British occupation and colonization were unsuccessful. But that unique intersection of the spiritual sadhana so deeply rooted within India gave, you know, empowered that, that country to win its liberation, which was really, really wonderful. The other thing that, 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 um, you know, even 
within every religion that has a spiritual practice, there are these intersections between spiritual practice and social justice. So, so this is something that, that we're experiencing kind of a, like, like a bubbling point, but it's not the only bubbling point within our history. And that's important to remember, even within, you could say the, you know, even in, in, every, in every major world religion, there are these kind of, you know, revolutionaries that come in and, and, and sort of, sort of really change yeah. and stir things up. You could say that, that the Buddha himself was, a, was an activist. You could say that Jesus that's was right. an activist. And Absolutely. so this is important kind of for us to remember and think about. Yes. Um, the other thing, however, is that I think it's a very important intersection, right? So if we say, start to embark on the path of here, everything is wrong with the world, you know, and then I'm going to go and fix that. So we can start to identify this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. And then this is sort of something that many people are doing now in a very and, and rightful way to look back at the past and say, you know, these atrocities were committed by the, you know, the, some people have noticed that their, their ancestors had committed atrocities that they were not aware of. Some people realize I stand on the, the shoulders of the privilege that rests mm-hmm. on, you know, harm uh, done to members of, 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 you know, marginalized communities. And, and then we, we can focus in on that. And then here's the amazing thing about spiritual practice, the degree to which you can see clearly yourself, the degree right. to which your own realization has been firm that will only accentuate your effectiveness at being an agent of change in the world and the degree to which you yourself are mired in anger bitterness hostility darkness depression all of that and i'm not saying beyond that i have all of that within me as well it's the degree to which we've let that baggage go through yes. the, the power of our tapas, our spiritual practice, right. to that degree, we're just going to be that much more effective agents of right. change in the world. We're going to be able to moderate our own emotions when we are flooded. We're going to be able to see more clearly and kind of tap into what is a truly compassionate and perhaps more effective course of action. So this is... Clear, right? Mm-hmm, I don't think absolutely. Think it's clear, yeah, clear. Yeah. yeah, and so this so is also the this is also the Gita, right? So this is one of the key yeah. texts that my teacher recommended all of the yoga students yeah. to read. And we 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 look at the Gita as you know yoga and action, but what we have to remember when we're thinking about the Gita is that Arjuna is the yogi, and this is what makes him effective at throwing that arrow, you know, aiming that arrow and having it land on its target and not reaping the negative karma of those, you know, the impact of that. Whereas if we are so, uh, if we have so much hubris to think that we are Arjuna, that we have attained that level of being the perfect yogi who's worthy of having having Krishna as his charioteer, then I think then, you know, then then I think we need a big reality check, right? So we're we're students, we're we're aspirants along the path. But this the story of the Gita really gives us something to aspire towards because we can think, well, here's Arjuna. The reason why he was an effective agent of change in this epic battle, which is a great metaphor for the epic battle that we're engaged in in our contemporary world, then we can say, well, maybe if I keep practicing, I can learn the same qualities that Arjuna had. And I can maybe in this lifetime, the next lifetime, next lifetime, next lifetime, who knows, you know, at some moment I'll get closer to that. So I'll be more effective. My arrow will hit closer to its target. There will be less karma associated with that arrow, less karma, a little bit better, a little bit better. That's what we're after. A little better, a little better. Well, and I want to ask about that because first of all, a question that comes to mind is, you know, what's, what's, what's the target? Like what, what, what are we actually aiming for? And in the context of that, um, I love what you talk about when you talk about practice and work, because this is, a, you know, I've texted you about this. We've been talking about this for several months now. 
um, you know, what, what is practice? What is showing up and doing the work? You had this wonderful um, talk on your podcast a few weeks ago, a month ago or whatever, where you were saying, you know, maybe not everybody is positioned for yoga. Maybe it's, you know, not everybody is a yoga practitioner, but you decide to become one. What is that? What, let's talk about, I mean, we were coming from two different, you know, disciplines that descended from the same, you know, teacher originally that have different looks and feels. I loved what you said earlier about the framework language and grammar, you know, of Ashtanga. And later you talked about the the sacred texts and the shared knowledge, you know, that sort of, this is when I started asking the questions about being expert adjacent. So you could say, for example, that the Iyengar tradition has, you know, slightly, a slightly different framework language and um, maybe, for, you know, framework language and, 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 and perspective. But the point is the practice. The point is being there every day and looking at yourself. So are we the target? Are we, <laughs> is the arrow going inside of our hearts? Like, Let's talk about that, the practice of the target. Yeah, good question. So I think, first of all, when we talk about the work, traditionally, it's tapas, right? It's the fire of purification and what we offer up into the fire. And we have the idea that tapas is tapas of the body. So we're purifying the physical body, but we're also having tapas of speech. And speech is interesting because it's the spoken word, you know, that has so much power to create or destroy. And then we have the tapas of our mind or our thoughts which is closely related to, but not equivalent with our speech. And then finally, I guess, then, then, then another form of tapas that comes up is the purification of our environment. So this is environmental as well. So then when we're thinking about this purification, necessarily, what are we purifying? We're purifying our old behavioral patterns, traditionally called in Sanskrit, the samskaras, these old behavioral patterns that have kind of codified around larger aggregate patterns, sometimes also called vasanas, that, that kind of create these, these cycles of suffering in our lives. And so we're, we're looking to purify that. And so the idea is that once these cycles of suffering, that the samskaras have been removed, then the true self can shine through. So we're very much the target in the sense that that eternal nature, which is within each of us, is meant to be revealed through the practices of yoga. Specifically, when we talk about the aim of yoga practices, we can look at one of the traditional texts of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And the, the definition of Ashtanga Yoga is a promise that Patanjali makes in that, in that text. And it's a bit of a long sutra, um, but I'll, I'll just do it quickly, yeah, easily, I, yeah, word for it's word. So right? important. It's so important. Yeah. So the sutra begins Yoganganushtanad. So Yoganganushtanad, which means the continual practice, the Anushtana of Ashtanga Yoga, the eight limbs, the continual practice of the eight limbs of yoga. Yoganganushtanad. Ashadiksyaye burns through impurities with the power of the fire of purification. Those impurities which we've already just spoken about. So Yoganganushtanad, Ashadiksyaye, Jnana Diktir, lights the lamp of knowledge. So now that same fire, which has been burning and burning and burning and burning, once all of the impurities are removed, that fire burns as a, as a lamp of knowledge within the student. Now, here's what's interesting. Then, avivekakyati. So, avivekakyati is the ability to discriminate. So, it's literally translated as discriminative discernment, but it is more specifically in understandable or relatable colloquial terms, the ability to decipher or delineate the untrue from the true. So, in other words, when the light shines, you can finally see clearly. And when the light is not shining, when the light is marred by the samskaras, we have a dim light, we have a broken light, we have a filtered light that doesn't reveal reality clearly. Ashtanga path 
this tool of the authority, which can see clearly and to reveal uh, to reveal the true nature of the self within, which is that eternal light. We could say the spark of of um of the spirit that rests in every every some some would say every sentient being, and some would right. say in the the spark and the center of every of every vibrating you know molecule and particle of energy right. in the universe. Right. Exactly. And I have in my practice and sort of just want to sort of second or affirm, you know, what it is that you're saying, because it it strikes me that as you do see that light shining more clearly, it is impossible. You, you can't do it if you're just looking at it as only yourself. In in fact, that's, that, that's a, that's a completely different, I mean, it's the Atman, that's a completely different look. But when you look in at that bright shining light of yourself, capital self, you feel the connection that you have to others. You feel the connection you, I have to, to the molecules and the trees and the and everything. And you recognize that all yeah. of your behaviors on the mat, off the mat, necessarily have these vibrations and these, you know, reverberances that you're a part of and you're contributing mm-hmm. to as much as are coming to you. Right. Oh, absolutely. And that's the work, right? Because we, we right. see these image, the images presented, you know, both in contemporary and also classical yoga of sort of yeah. yogis looking extremely peaceful, embodied in some state of like Mahasamadhi, like, wow, we're sort of, we're like almost right. disembodied and crossed over with that level of, of kind of, yeah. you know, uh, uh, ultimate peace. So, so then, then we come and do the practice and we're like, Hey, wait a minute. Like I just finished my practice and I go stand outside and that thing, which never used to bother me about my partner. Now I feel everything and I feel that I'm yeah. flooded and I tune in and now what do I do? Like, how do I don't even, I didn't even know that that bothered me now that bothers me. And so now I need to sit with it. I need to process this. Yeah. So there's a lot of what you could call shadow work included in tapas, yes. which is yes. why we say we burn, you know? And so it's not, yeah. so some people, when they hear that burn, they're like, right. So like my muscles will burn. It's like, yeah. it's not a, like, yes, like the muscles will totally burn yeah. in a good yoga yeah. class, uh, even yeah. a yin class. Uh, but at the same yeah. time, the idea is that the burning is really the surrendering of those accoutrements of the ego, which we are most attached right. to into that holy fire of purification. And it's right. that active surrender, which is so hard for us to do because it requires us to let go of all we know, all we know ourselves to be, all that we are, all all, all the patterns that exist within um, everything we, we, we assume ourselves to be and we, we assume our world yeah. to be, to offer that into that holy fire of purification feels yeah. like, it feels, it feels like jumping into the abyss and it feels like dissolution. Yeah. And, and this is what, you know, Patanjali calls Abhinivesha, which is sometimes translated yeah. as fear of death, but is more specifically fear of the loss of the false self. Yes, so it's like exactly. fear of the death of the ego. And when the That's ego right. dies, then we, the, the ego uh, and, and all the patterning around the ego fights so hard and there, and, and the thing is that most people will on some conscious level at this stage in our sort of contemporary society kind of generally agree with that. Yes, the ego, you know, is strong right. and the ego fights back. However, it is the unconscious patterns of the ego, those parts of ourselves and our mind, which we are not conscious of, those are the, the, the most destructive and damaging of the samskaras. And just because they're not brought up into our consciousness, actually, because they're not brought up into our consciousness, they have the most power over us. So sometimes it's said that the tool of asana is to bring forth that which is in the darkness into the light. And it's not easy. So this is what I refer to as the work. We're going into the practice. We're sitting with our stuff. We're, We're revealing that which is in the darkness and sitting with it in the light and then learning to respond compassionately, learning to respond appropriately, learning to respond with wisdom. And, and, and this is, this is, this is a lifelong practice.
Yeah, and it makes me think a little bit about somebody, you know, sort of many, many questions ago was asking about sort of whether Ashtanga, for example, includes Ayurveda, and we don't necessarily need to go that deep, but I'm thinking about the burning of the muscles and thinking about that focus that such work on the musculature brings because that, you know, in, in Ayurveda is called the Anamaya Kosha, the outside muscular skeletal body. And when your attention is drawn to that kind of um, experience, what I hear you saying, and I wonder if you agree or, you know, would sort of want to um, riff on it a little bit, is that underneath and within the Anamaya Kosha is your Manamaya Kosha, is your mental body. And then within that is your Pranamaya Kosha, is your breath body. And then, and, 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 you know, you continue to go in. So if you can, you know, the, the hardest thing about being human is the distraction that we have all the time everywhere is that focusing and actually focusing in on this path and this practice and this work as you describe can be so difficult because it's like, oh, I'm so interested, but oh my God, my thing just pinged her. Oh my God, that's so interesting, but oh my God, I forgot this. And so when you go into that burn and that focus that you take into your body underneath that is the compassion itself. Within that is this bliss body. And that's at least my experience so far practicing is, is that, is that has been your experience as well? So I think we, uh, in our, in terms of the, there, there, there's maybe two things to talk about here. And the first is the traditional presentation of the different sheets or the bodies, the transition. Koshas, from, yeah. Yeah. Called the koshas, the different sheets of the body moving from the material to, uh, the, the, the energetic and, you know, and, and moving from the monomaya kosha all the way to ananda maya kosha. So that, that body of bliss. And so that's, that's one transition. However, before we can even take that step, and this is where I feel we in the West have our, we need to back up a lot because we read these texts and we think, oh, I'm going to activate my ananda maya kosha. Here yeah. I go. Like, let me zoom <laughs> up. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. You need to back up just a moment. Like yeah. we met so many people in the Western world are not even in their monomaya kosha. They're not even in yes, the right. body. Yeah, yeah. So if we need yeah, to just yeah. back up completely yeah. for, yeah. we need to back up completely and understand that the vast majority of people walk around in what you could call a trance-like state, myself included, before I started to do the yoga practice. And still to this day, we even, like I also have moments where I'm still in a trance of forgetting. And we learn these behaviors, socially conditioned, socialized in Western countries where the emphasis is not on it is not placed on the subtlety of the inner experience, but is placed on kind of outward achievement and external, like externalization of goals and identification with mainstream cultural norms. And then the only way to develop to cope essentially in the trauma of being alive and sometimes these very harmful situations is to dissociate, is to leave the body for a period of time. And then when we leave the body for a period of time, before we can even think about activating all of these kind of states of higher consciousness and going in to tap into the wisdom within or the mind within, it's just to get back into the body. Mm -hmm. So this is very important to understand about asana. Is that, mm -hmm. is that one of the things that I like to say is how do you know this asana is working for you? Then yeah. to answer the question, do you feel more in your body? You know, do you have more sensations somewhere in your body? Not did you get deeper, not did you stretch more, not did you lift up more, did you do that one asana and there was more sensation somewhere in your yeah. body? If that answer is yes, then guess what? That asana is working for you and congratulations, yeah. you're doing the work of yoga. So sit with yeah. that. 
rather than say, oh man, my practice was terrible today because I didn't put my leg behind my head and because I didn't do this and I didn't do that. And, you know, I used to do it better when I was younger. I mean, if I'm like, if we judge ourselves by the, yeah. we judge our trajectory of spiritual practice yeah. by what our bodies can do, you know, then yeah. we're not going to be able to continue to develop spiritually, right. you know, as we age. And this is right. something that's very, very important to understand is that that, that, that inner work, just bringing the mind continually yeah. back into the body right. and then recognizing that the body's constantly changing. We don't have the same body we did 10 years ago. And we're not going to have right. the same body 10 years from now, but to constantly just tune in, constantly tune in, constantly yeah. tune in. And then that lays the foundation for, for, for kind of moving, uh, you know, layers down. So it's almost like we need to arrive at the lobby of our bodies yes. and then we can open a door to the subtlety yeah. within. But if yeah. we never arrive at the, the, the doorway, right. the lobby of our bodies, then we're just right. out there and we're just answering emails and we're here and we're there yeah, and we're here exactly. and we're there. We're totally functioning, but we're right. operating oh, in this sure. kind of trance state of just, we're totally. almost like zombies answering emails, just like, let, yeah. me, let, me, get, let, me, let me just get these done. You know, and then, we, and then we, we manage somehow to get all of this stuff done. It's a great testament to, you know, our strength and our resilience. At the same time, the invitation which not everyone takes, but the invitation of yoga is to question, is there something more? Is, and this is why I like to call the yoga path a seeker's journey. You know, a seeker's, yeah. what are you seeking? You're seeking, what do you, you need to have to have a question. That question yes. is, I want to live a more peaceful life. I want to know who I really am. I want to yeah. know my original self. I want to, I want yeah. to know, is there something more? Why am I here? Right. What's this life right. about? Where do I go when right. I die? Where do I come from? When yeah. I, where did I come from when yes. I was born? The seeker asked these questions. Yes. And that's why I say, yes. you know, not everybody, maybe yoga is not for everybody, right? But right. who is it for? Right. That student who has that question within, yeah. that student who says, you know, uh, there's something in it's, it. It doesn't have, to, it can be pre-verbal. It can be a yearning. It can be a something that's like an urge that just sort of says, uh, yeah. uh, you know, this question, you know, right. this is that, you know, that Robert Frost poem, Two paths appeared in the woods or two paths diverged in the woods. And I chose the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. So the right. yogi is the one who chose the one less traveled by mm -hmm. and not everyone takes that path and that's okay. But mm -hmm. every student who takes that path, I believe that we as yoga teachers yeah. and in the yoga community have an obligation to do everything within our power to keep them on that path and give them all the tools to successfully reach their journey. Now, those students who don't want to join the path, we can let them know like, hey, there's another way. They may or may not come on the path. That's okay. You know, it's okay. I don't, for example, I don't go and do spinning. Yeah. That You can send me infinite advertisements for spinning. Yeah. And I got to tell you, it's not for me. I have nothing against it. You love it. You go yeah. and do it. That's not my right. path. That's right. just not my path. Right, right. Right. So that's okay. Well, and you know, spinning, I, I hope I don't offend anybody <laughs> on the call, but, but, you know, but, but basically like spinning does not set out to my knowledge and to my exposure to have answers, answers to provide this holistic, deep exploration of the self and the soul, the way the Ashtanga path does. And so I understand what you're saying, but I also do think, and it, it may wind up being that way for people, but wouldn't you say that, well, it, it makes me think about I have the no question. idea. I have, the thing is, I've never yeah. tried spinning. So I just, yeah. I, that's not true. I think I've tried it like once and it just really wasn't for me. Yeah, and so same. I think that, and I, I think that the, at, yeah. you know, at the same time, someone else may go and find, look, this healed yeah. me, this opened me up to, you yeah. know, discover my relationship with God and they do yeah. this. So, 
Thank this is, that's their path. Um, yeah. You know, and so the, this is well, the, the, and I the, guess maybe that's what I mean about the path. The path is 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 knowing knowing the God and the goddess in in yourself. Is that what you would say? Like path? Is that how you would hmm. say it? Well, you know, God and goddess starts to get kind of uh, well, uh, you know, uh, they're, 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 we need to we need to sort of unpack those terms, and they can be off putting mm-hmm. for people of different religions. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. one of yeah, the things that I that I one of the things that I think is important if we go all the way back to kind of, you know, the traditional foundation of yoga philosophy is that uh, we're thinking about some concept of universal, eternal truth that is alive within all beings and all things, you could say. And to be able to tap into that is transcendent of this religion or that religion or this belief or that belief. Otherwise, then you have my God is better than your God and this year and then I'm and so then yeah. we end up back in the war of religions. And so yeah. we have to understand that the yoga, the practice is spiritual, but non-religious. And mm-hmm. that these techniques, you can be Hindu. Then we have to acknowledge, of course, that yoga comes from, from, yeah. from the Hindu culture yeah. and that yoga is a Hindu practice. At the same yeah. time, the technique of yoga asana as a method of clearing out the obstacles can be practiced by Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, or you know, uh, people follow any faith really. And so that's also very, very important. Now, if again, mm-hmm. if we go back to Patanjali, why in traditional yoga do we start with this Om sounds? We have Om, mm-hmm. Om is the Pranava. Om mm-hmm. is the sacred sound of the universal oneness that people mm-hmm. oftentimes refer to as God. And Patanjali says that there is no name we can say with our words and our language that it will adequately uh call God and, uh, and so any- you know, can I just say really quick mm-hmm. did you know if you ever talked to a speech therapist about this I learned this early in my yoga teaching career that the sound om it touches every part of the mouth that makes that human beings use to make sound which is why mm-hmm. like in other words science has been able to like verify the fact that this universal sound was mm-hmm. labeled this thousands of years ago. So I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I thought that was one of the neatest things that I learned 20 years ago or something. Yeah, absolutely. And so then, you know, traditionally we have the beginning of the Mm ohms with it, with it, with the opening of the mouth, which, which is actually often um, said to be non-enunciated. So we open our mouths, but uh, the A is actually a silent A. And then this is why we start with OM rather than OM. Otherwise it gets a little um, odd. And then, so yeah, yeah, and then the A sound Mm -hmm. signifies the beginning and it's the spark of birth. And this Mm -hmm. is the opening of the mouth. The U sound is the sustaining and with with the majority of our life, what you could call birth, life. And then the M sound represents death Mm -hmm. and the end. And and however, there's a fourth sound, uh, which is said that is the, 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 the vibration of silence which is associated with the Turiya state of consciousness or the yogic state of consciousness. And then it's this idea that the yogis, by repeating the sound over and over again, experience the bliss of, of silence. And the idea that the Om sound wasn't, isn't something that was created, but it is the sound of the universe. It is literally the sound. And I don't know, I would imagine you have uh, tried, and, and maybe some others who have practiced have also tried to do intensive practices far out from the major metropolitan areas and then yeah. experience the silence, which is there. And in the silence, I have heard the sound om in the deep silence yeah. of, of, of meditation and in the deep silence of, of, of nature when, when everything is, is absolutely still. And this is the, that universal sound. Um, which is so healing for us. And it's very, very important that 
if we if practice yoga, we include that Om sound as much as possible, at least the Om. If you don't know the Sanskrit mantras and we don't have the yeah. Sanskrit prayers and your Sanskrit pronunciation is not so good and yeah. mine is not so good, you know, but when we don't know the asana names in Sanskrit, but at least this Om, this Om yeah. we should keep. And, and I'm, I'm not in favor of, of classes which seek to sort of, you know, whitewash yoga or make it more palatable by removing mm-hmm. the, 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 the traditional Hindu practices of, of uh, you know, of, of yoga, which are including this chanting that initiates the practice and the chanting that ends the practice. I think this is, this is something universal, absolutely universal. You know, it's like we don't need to move away from someone speaking a different language. For example, I was recently, I was recently in Greece uh, this year. And I was walking over to teach my yoga class uh, on Sunday morning, and I walked by a Greek Orthodox church. And I have never been in a Greek Orthodox church, but a sound was just this chanting. And I asked my friend who is Greek Orthodox, I said, what's going on in there? Can we go in? And she said, well, we'll we'll be late for class, but you're welcome to go in. And I asked what the service was. And the service in the traditional Greek Orthodox church, and again, I, I just walked by, it was so touching, is that the priests chant. And you as the parishioner, you go in and you sit and meditate with the atmosphere of the chant. I thought, oh, this is okay. Like, this is something really, really special. Yeah. You know, and I thought this is also the atmosphere of the traditional, uh, the, the puja ceremonies that are done in temples. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, maybe we don't know uh, what the priest is saying, especially if we're Westerners and, you know, the, we're unfamiliar with the Sanskrit, but you can sit and experience the vibration. And this, I think, is very important. So we, we don't need to be afraid. You know, my yoga teacher, he said, please don't try to convert to become a Hindu. He always said, you know, you do your practice, you, you're going to get closer to, to, to God. And he always said, your God, however you know that God to be. So if God is a goddess for you, you're going to get closer to that. If God is Jesus Christ for you, you're going to get closer to Jesus. If God is mm-hmm. Buddha for you, then you're going to get closer to Buddha. Um, and, 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 and it continues like that. If God is Shiva mm-hmm. for you, then you're going to get closer with Shiva. If God is, is Krishna for you, you're going to get closer with Krishna. So then in this way, we have our, 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 um, you know, our personal connection with the divine. And yet at the same time, this is what's hard for the Western mind to understand. And yet it is the, still the same oneness. It is. So this is very hard for the Western mind. Oh, you worship Shiva. Oh, but I worship Jesus. So now we're, you know, now we're at odds. It's like, no, 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 no. We've misunderstood, at least within yoga, we've misunderstood. It's right. a, it's this universal truth within all beings. Right. right. Exactly. You know, I have to say the comments that are rolling in are so amazing because so many people have been saying things that then you say and then ask a question that I realized that I wanted to ask. It's just been incredible. And, and I, and, you know, the reason I, I, I went that for that moment to God and goddess, and I really appreciate the, uh, the conversation that that sort of, you know, created for us. It, I was thinking about the thing that you and I have talked about multiple times, that this might be the way we like land this plane, um, which is, you know, the, 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 the women in power in yoga today, the going forward of yoga, the, the, the sort of, the, there's, you know, power balances, as you also pointed out in our talk, for those who just joined, uh, and really, this will be saved on your, on your handle, right? So people can watch it. You all really showing a place should please, we've been here for an hour doing this just about, and it's just been a fascinating talk. Um, but the power balances are just shifting so tremendously right now all over the place. We're at an inflection point, I think, in a lot of different ways. And so let's talk a little bit about how we see or what we think about 
you know, the majority of yoga, we don't want it this way. We want the majority of yoga practitioners to be, you know, all inclusive with, you know, uh, people who identify in, 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 in whatever way they're comfortable with. But the reality is that right now, most like, uh, female identifying people are yoga practitioners, like to the tune of like 85% or something still that Mm -hmm. balance hasn't really changed too much. At least not in the West, right? At least not in the West. But I, but tell me about that. What you know about, well, anyway, we can talk about that. I I had heard that the, that the, the the percentages were slightly different east of the date line, but still a little bit more (laughs) focused on, um, the female identifying practitioners then so so anyway let's talk about what how do we see the power dynamic shifting beyond what you talked about in the middle of our talk around this co-creation of a yoga community mm-hmm. oh i love the young vn yeah i love that faith like gravity i'm just i'm loving your your chats but yeah let's talk about that maybe to, to so close it out if, <laughs> the, if the majority of uh, first of all i don't think there's anything wrong with the majority of, of, of yoga practitioners in our contemporary world being you know, maybe female identifying or even cisgender female identifying it's practitioners. Fascinating. I think it's so it be- fascinating. Because that in and of itself is a power shift, right? Yeah, so we have exactly. to remember That's that right. for That's thousands sorry. of, you know, I'm thousands listening. of My generations. My dog is freaking out. Oh, <laughs> it's very cute. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I know. The, the, the tribe has come home for dinner. So anyway, sorry, oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Yes, it, it is right. evidence so, of a power shift for sure. Yeah. So if we look back just a hundred years, you know, all of these women that are practicing would not be allowed access to these very, very, yeah. uh, you know, very protected teachings. And so we have the idea that these that these teachings are like 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 a like a treasure that's been protected and passed down and and, and saved and almost hidden away for thousands of generations. Yeah. So number one, we always have to say namaste, which is thank you. I bow down and uh, an act of yeah. respect and reverence to those on whose shoulders I stand. These thousands yeah. of generations of of seekers within India, primarily men, primarily Brahmins, that have protected this knowledge. We thank them. And the fact that this knowledge is globally shared and that so many people in the West, particularly women, are practicing in and of itself represents kind of, you know, a power dynamic shift. At the same time, we have to be sensitive to the issue of cultural appropriation. So the idea that suddenly more people are practicing yoga in the West than within India, we have to just make sure that yoga does not lose its roots and make sure that the integrity of the yoga tradition stays within the lineage and that we constantly look back to the traditional teachings, the traditional sources. And then, and then we, we kind of, we kind of have to navigate this space of yes, there's a newness in, 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 in sort of the, the, the global yoga community. And, and within that there, there has to be a recognition of, of where we came from with an eye towards where we're going. And I don't think it's yeah. up to me to decide. I think it's up to the students of the world to decide. And so I just encourage all the students who are practicing to seek out, you know, the, the, the traditional lineage-based practices as often as possible. Go to the source. Yeah. You know, learn Sanskrit from a to India, visit an ashram, stay in an ashram, you know, check all of your possessions and your phone in at the front desk and volunteer and, you know, uh, do everything that you can to be steeped in the lineage and, and, and experience cultural immersion. Don't just pick and choose the pieces of an ancient culture 
that you think are fun and exotic and use it for your benefit because that's cultural appropriation. Experience cultural immersion. And then it will come naturally to you how, how, how valuable these teachings are and how to protect them for the future. Because every person who practices yoga has a responsibility. And, and again, India is yoga's culture of origin. It's thousands of generations of yogis yeah. within India that have practiced and safeguarded this knowledge that yeah. are the reason that we, that we have this, that we have this practice. Of course, you could say that within that the contemporary India's borders are not necessarily ancient India's borders. So uh, you could argue also that to go into Tibet, to go into Nepal, to go into you know uh, various places in the Himalayas, uh, to even look at Bangladesh or even Burma, that the, that this this area yeah. uh, of of what was once India. Yeah. could also be included in that you know yeah. but the the the, the, sun, the sanskrit based uh, languages and so that's a bigger discussion you know um it's a it, it's a bigger discussion to 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 go into you know how the current uh, you know partition lines of within india within india have been drawn in terms of colonization and you know that 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 itself has it has its harm but but at, yeah. so and, and this is useful to talk about all of that so again we yeah. we're practicing yoga we're not of indian descent we didn't we weren't raised in India then, um, you know, or, or the, the ancient areas within India, like someone is mentioning Nepal and, and that's definitely, yeah. you know, included within that and Tibet as well and included within that ancient Indian region, um, Bangladesh as well, you know, and, 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 and some surrounding countries as well. So, so we're not from that. You're, you know, you're a, from Europe, you're European descent, you're Canadian, you're from the US, uh, you're, yeah. you know, you're not from those places, you have great privilege, make sure that you do everything possible to experience cultural immersion, and make sure that you do not pick and choose the things which look cool, and, and then just use those for your own, for your, for your own advantage, dive deeply into the lineage, that's, that's the only way we can protect the, the, the sacred knowledge of yoga going forward. Totally. I could not agree more with any of that. Is there anything else you want to say? I know we had talked a little bit about 40 minutes and it's been yeah. an hour, but of course I could talk to you forever. <laughs> we can do another, great. we can schedule another one. Of these. I would love to. I do. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we had a ton of the questions we talked about talking about, and I hope for everybody that's been a useful conversation. You know, I've been doing this yoga lineage conversation all year. And I, and I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I have to say, you know, you're, my favorite to talk to. I just love it. I think it's great. And I love <laughs> yeah, sharing thanks. it. It's beautiful. Oh my gosh, of course. So thanks to everybody. I'm in Weeks Stop Well. And thank you for having me on your platform today, Kino. And I'd love to have another conversation because I think the more of these that yeah. happen, the more we keep rooting in, Absolutely. in this story. So Absolutely. Anyway, thanks so much for really today. Yeah, yeah, you too. too. Thanks, everyody. Bye-bye, everybody. Hey there. It's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. 
So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.